This afternoon, I want to take up the second. <clears throat> Today, I want to pick up the discussion we started a week ago about modernity. And I want to talk about the Enlightenment and its consequences. I hope you all remember last time we talked in broad strokes about modernity and about the various kinds. Can someone shut the air conditioning off in this room? Ari, is that possible to just sort of make it a little it sort of cold? Or is it just me? You remember that last week we talked about, uh, broad, in broad strokes, about the beginning of modernity, the Renaissance, the Reformation, the creation of capitalism, and so on. Today I'd like to pick up that story, because all of those factors continue to work their way through European history and world history. And over the 300 years, let's say, between the 1400, the Renaissance, and 1700, they made enormous strides and they matured in all kinds of ways. <clears throat> and they generated, in the 18th century, a movement called the Enlightenment, the Aufklärung. The Enlightenment is one of those very special moments in the history of the world because it really marked a decisive maturation of the earlier ideas of the use of reason, the role of the intellect in human life, and the consequences of using intellect in human life. This is especially profound for political discussion and, of course, for religious discussion. Without uh, an extended disquisition, let me just say that the decisive the defining condition of the Enlightenment was that human beings are human beings primarily by virtue of their reason. What makes us human is our intellect. And from that, they drew a very obvious corollary. If everyone who is human is human by virtue of their intellect, then everyone, in a sense, has a certain basic equality. And then there's a second corollary you could draw. If everybody is basically the same, why should there be disabilities? Why should some groups be privileged and other groups be uh, prejudiced against? Why should some have rights and other groups have not have other individuals not have rights? And you see that discussion very clearly in the political thinking that comes into being. The talk about individual rights, human rights, freedoms, all of these concepts that we take for granted in America today are new in human history. For most of human history, nobody ever heard of a human right, just obligations. And nobody heard about an individual right. And nobody heard that all people are equal, right? Now, in the Enlightenment, the, which took place uh, first and foremost in Germany, but of course it was very influential in France, it was influential in other parts of Europe, and it was influential in the United States. People like Thomas Jefferson were clearly an Enlightenment intellectual. Washington was an Enlightenment intellectual. People in the United States uh, read these ideas, shared these ideas, and made the revolution on the basis of these ideas, that all men are created equal. Now, when they said that, of course, they started also, remember the last lecture I said to you, modernity created an issue, what to do with the Jews, the Jewish question. So now when the people who were at the center of the Enlightenment started to take this theory that human beings are defined by their intellect and all human beings are equal vis-a-vis -vis intellect as the defining condition, then they asked the question, what about the Jews? Now what they said was essentially even those people who are anti-Semites like Voltaire, who was a, quite a rabid anti-Semite, said, you know, I don't like Jews. But the fact is that given my politics, given my intellectual foundations, I believe that Jews should be given rights. Jews should be given equality. And Kant, the greatest of the Enlightenment thinkers, said the same thing. Jews should be given rights. And you see this in the political discussion of the mid-18th century, where the Jewish question is a very central question. All the leading intellectuals in Europe are writing pamphlets about it. And of course, the Jews themselves are writing pamphlets about it. And the most famous Jew of his time writes a famous book about it. His name is Moses Mendelssohn. And he writes a book called Jerusalem. And in the Jerusalem, he argues that religion should not play a role in political life, that people should be citizens. And religion should be a part of their private uh, personal behavior. And of course, 100 years earlier, Spinoza had argued the same thing in his Tractatus Theologicus Politicus. 
Now, this uh, debate that went on in France and Germany, with the encouragement, I must say, with the encouragement of Jewish thinkers like Mendelssohn and his circle, Marcus Hertz and uh, Vesely and uh, Friedlander, made an impression. It made an impression in the general world and it made an impression in the Jewish world. In the general world, it led to the discussion, which I'll come back to in a moment, that culminated first in the United States, much to the credit of the United States, that gave Jews freedom when it gave itself independence. And it said, Jews are included as citizens. There's no disability against Jews from the very first in the United States. You might say in the Jewish question never existed in America. Because when they declared uh, freedom for all men, they said Jews too. There was no debate. More significant in historical terms, given the uh, relative importance of France compared to America in the 18th century, when the French Revolution came and it said all men have the right to freedom and so on, it gave the Jews of Sephardic origin immediate citizenship. Then people pointed out that was a kind of contradiction with its basic principles. They debated in the French Assembly for two years, and then they gave all Jews in France uh, equality. So by 1791, all the Jews in France had equality. And based on that model of the American and then the French Revolution, slowly between 1789, the French Revolution, you might say, and 1871, when uh, Switzerland gave Jews rights, the last country in Western Europe, all the countries of Western Europe over about 100 years process gave the Jews citizenship, gave them rights. And that came, as I say, out of the Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment is obviously an enormously powerful force. It's a solvent in the sense that it destroys old prejudices. If you use your intellect, if you use your reason, then a lot of the old ideas about peoples, about religions, about myths, about cultures, all dissolves. On the other hand, I should say that it also is a challenge. If you're a member of a community that has beliefs, that has foundational ideas that are essential to it, those ideas can be deeply challenged by this use of unaided reason as the decisive phenomena for determining truth. And that was true for the Jewish community. The Jewish community now confronted this whole massive intellectual assault, and it had to deal with the questions raised by these new ideas. The beginning of this conversation took place in what is called the Haskalah. The Haskalah is the name for the Jewish Enlightenment, and the members, the intellectuals who were part of the conversation, like Mendelssohn, are called maskil. A maskil means an enlightened one. And maskilim is the plural, the, the group of maskilim. And that's why Mendelssohn is so famous. Mendelssohn begins a conversation about what this means for Jewish life. So for example, in order to let in the enlightenment into Jewish life, what does Mendelssohn do preeminently? What's Mendelssohn's most famous project? Any of you know? Good. You always got, you had a good education. Uh, the fact is that Mendelssohn translated the Bible into German, and he wrote a commentary called the Beur. The reason for this is not because he wanted the Jews of 1770 to learn the Bible, the Bible they knew. What he wanted them to learn was German. And so he thought, what was the safest book that wouldn't scare the rabbis, wouldn't scare the average Jew. It was a kosher book. It would be the Bible. But by reading it in German, they would learn German. And in his commentary, he works in scientific theories. He works in mathematics. He works in political ideas, right? And so when the people read the commentary, they would be educated in the current fashion. Now, you all see what happens immediately. If you speak German, once you learn it, then you don't have to only read the Bible in German, you can read Kant in German, you can read Schiller, you can read Schelling, you can read Fichte, you can read Hegel. And just to show you how it works, Mendelssohn's translation was so successful, the Jews so successful at acculturation that 150 years later, there would be another Bible translation by Martin Buber and Franz Rosenzweig. Now, why did they translate the Bible? They translated again into German for the exact opposite reason. The Jews of Germany know how to read German, but they've never read the Bible. So he wants to make the Bible so sexy that the Jews of Germany will read the Bible and they'll say, my goodness, there's something to this Jewish business. There's something to learning Hebrew. So we'll start to study the Bible as a way back into Judaism. For Mendelssohn, the study of the Bible was a way out of Judaism, right? 
Not that Mendelssohn intended it to be out, by, by that I mean leaving Judaism, but a way into the open world, an opening of culture. Now these ideas were very, very repercussive, especially one that I'll mention because we'll deal with it in a sense for the whole of the uh, afternoon, and that is the idea of secular education. What is the role of secular education in a Jewish community? Now, all of a sudden, you're going to get a flood of new ideas coming into the Jewish community. You're going to get the new science that has been developing over the previous two, generation, two centuries being translated into Hebrew. You're going to get mathematics. You're going to get philosophy. You're going to get literature, especially by physicians. Physicians are very important because physicians go to the secular universities. They come back at night to the Jewish ghetto, but they bring with them secular learning, right? They had to know science in order to be in the medical school. They had to know German in order to be at the medical school. So they come home at night, and they start to translate all of the books that are in German into Hebrew, especially physicians as a kind of wedge for modern culture. Now, because time is limited, let me just say that this begins a very profound conversation in the Jewish community. What is Judaism going to be in the modern world? And once this is translated into a political agenda, namely Jews get rights, and then after 1789 become citizens, what does this mean for Judaism? This is a deep question. What does it mean when Jews are citizens? What does it mean when Jews are equal? What does it mean when you can go to the university? Should you go? Should you not go? What should you study? So these questions become the pressing questions of the day. And they're made really incarnate in a profound way by the French emancipation. The French emancipation, as the term indicates, was to give Jews political rights, right? That's what we mean by emancipation. So in America, you all know, we have the emancipation of the slaves by Lincoln. And by that, we mean that there were people who were in bondage. And then he declared that such a status was illegal, and the black community of slaves became free men and women. In that obvious sense, the French Revolution and French emancipation of the Jews meant the same thing. We're going to take the Jews who've had to live in ghettos. We're going to take the Jews who couldn't participate in various cultural phenomena. We're going to take the Jews who couldn't be in the army, and we're going to make them citizens. We're going to take away all the disabilities. But there is, ladies and gentlemen, a second aspect to this emancipation. The subtlety of it is the key. The emancipation of the Jews had two aspects. The obvious aspect was to free them from their political disabilities. The second aspect, which everyone in Europe understood, especially the people who made the emancipation possible in the French Assembly, was that the emancipation was actually going to be a kind of bargain, a quid pro quo. There was going to be a double emancipation. On the one hand, the Gentile majority was going to free us from our political disabilities. But the assumption was, because the Gentile majority still held the view that Judaism, not Jews anymore, but Judaism was a negative phenomenon, that Judaism was still superstition and foolishness and legalism and whatever else you want it to be in a negative sense, the Jews had to reciprocate by emancipating themselves from their Judaism. And that is really the heart of the last 200 years of Jewish history. The Gentiles are willing to liberate us, but we are expected to liberate ourselves from our Judaism because of the continuing negative phenomenon. Now, those of you who are interested, for example, in European literature will know, and philosophy as well, that there's no sympathetic portrayal of Judaism till essentially the 20th century in Europe, right? You can read all the literature. You get negative views of Judaism, whether it's Shylock, even in, in Lessing, the famous Nathan the Wise, he says to Mendelssohn, you are a great man, Mendelssohn. And how does he praise him? He says to him, you are really a Christian. That's the highest praise that Lessing can give to Mendelssohn, who's, of course, the model of Nathan the, Weiser, Nathan the Wise. The one sympathetic portrayal may be George Eliot's, of course, Zionism in her Daniel Deronda. It's a book I hope all of you know. Uh, the, but the, the negative side of that is people argue that she was a Zionist because she wanted the Jews to leave England. Uh, so the fact is that uh, there's no sympathetic portrayal. Even in modern 20th century literature, if you read the early Agatha Christie's, you'll see the bad guy is never the Jew, but is always a shady character who deflects the the image, right? Some Jew broker with a hooked nose. So this is a, a standard feature of European culture, that Judaism is a bad thing. Now, Jews, of course, being who they are, 
responded to this opportunity in a multifarious kind of way. They didn't have one response, they had many responses. And the many responses I've indicated on the board to you. There's also another, if there were time, I would make another sort of half arc where I'd put the Gentile views from liberal to radically anti-Semitic racial. But maybe next time, if uh, we have a minute, we'll do that. Today, I want to concentrate on the Jewish responses. The Jews responded, as you would expect, with all kinds of opinions on how they should treat the new possibility. Emancipate yourself from your Judaism. Now, what the Jews did was a pluralistic kind of thing. Some Jews said, now that Christianity is no longer a burden, no one is forcing us to be Christian, we should convert because it's just the simplest way in. And Heine gave this, all of you know Heinrich Heine, the famous Jewish poet who converted to Christianity. When he converted, he said, this is a passport to European civilization. And there was not a lot of conversion, statistically, but there was significant conversion, especially among the wealthy. The wealthy Jews felt that their opportunities now to mix freely in Christian society would be encouraged, would be facilitated by conversion. So for example, all the great Jewish banking families that you know about from the 18th century, none of them have Jewish children at the end of the 20th century except for the Rothschilds. All of them become converted into Christian society. And in addition, the meaning of conversion changes. You now get, instead of the traditional view of conversion as death, right? You all know in a traditional Jewish community, if a child, say, converts, what does the father and mother do? It sits shiva, right? It sits, it mourns. It goes through a period of mourning as if the child had died. Now conversion takes on a totally different valence. Now conversion means a difference of opinion. In a modern liberal environment, people are free to have their opinions. So if you want to have an opinion to go to the Episcopal shul instead of to the Orthodox synagogue, that's an opinion. So nobody's going to force you. It would be out of keeping with modernity. It would be out of keeping with the fundamental principles of the modern temperament of toleration to force people or to criticize people. And so you find very interesting things about, for example, if you go to Jerusalem, I know all of you know Jerusalem well. You know in Jerusalem, there's a thing called the Radisbone Monastery. The Radisbone Monastery was created by two Jewish brothers who converted from a wealthy family. And the father wrote them a nice letter saying, I wish you well, I wish you hadn't done it, but I understand, gesund hate, you'll still inherit my money. So the fact is that conversion is a new option. It never had this feeling before, because previously conversion meant an abandonment of Judaism, leaving a sinking ship or a ship that was deeply in trouble. The second option, which I don't have because of the, the nature of the seminar time to discuss in detail, is really a very important one, is assimilation. Assimilation, ladies and gentlemen, is a totally new historic option. You remember I told you last time that in the Middle Ages, everybody was who they were by virtue of the group to which they belonged. This meant that you could only change your status, your position in society, by conversion if you were a Jew. If you were a Jew, you had to live in the ghetto. You had to be subject to special taxation. You couldn't go to the universities. You could only change your status by conversion. But now something new is created by modernity, and that's at least a semi-neutral, I don't say altogether neutral, but at least a semi-neutral public space in which people can leave behind who they were, it doesn't mean the Jewish, Buddhist, Christian, it doesn't matter, and enter into a public space which is not defined by religion. So for example, you all know in the United States, no one asks for your religion on the census. You know that in the United States, nobody asks your religion when you want to take out a loan. Nobody asks your religion when you want to buy a house, right? Now, this, of course, came slowly. There were numerous clauses. There were communities where Jews couldn't live, like La Jolla and so on. But when the, you know when the university came to La Jolla, the president of the University of La Jolla went to the realtors, and he said to the realtors, unless you let Jews come, I'm not going to have a university here because I have to hire Jewish faculty. Then all of a sudden, the realtors realize when Jews come, the prices double. So they let the Jews into La Jolla, right? So the fact is, these disabilities fell away. And secularism, 
went hand in hand with assimilation. So assimilation means you can leave behind your Jewish identity, but you don't have to join another community. It's not conversion. So you say, I don't want to be part of the Jewish community, but I want to be part of the modern world. Instead of reading the Bible, I want to read Nietzsche. Instead of going to the synagogue, I want to go to my psychiatrist. So the fact is that this becomes the preeminent modern option. And as I said, if there were time, we could discuss this in more detail. The first great Jewish assimilated person is whom? Who's the paradigm? Spinoza. Spinoza is put out of the Jewish community when the elector Palatine of Heidelberg offers him the chair of philosophy at Heidelberg, a very great honor from a great, at that time, a great university. Spinoza says, no, thank you, because in order to take the chair, he would have had to be a Christian. So he's the first assimilated Jew. He leaves behind his Judaism, and he doesn't enter another religion. He doesn't become a Catholic, though he had Catholic disciples who wanted him to be a Catholic. He doesn't become a Protestant. He doesn't become an Anabaptist. Assimilation is the second option. If we keep moving along, you see these first two options on the idea that they're wrestling with of separating a Jew from their Judaism is really quite complete. The conversion, of course, is complete. The assimilation is not complete, complete, but it's close. So in the United States today, most Jews are assimilated. Now, of course, the degrees of assimilation vary. It's a complicated question how you define assimilation. But if you take a simple definition, that assimilation means not belonging to a Jewish organization. When you consider how many Jewish organizations there are, right? we have secular organizations, Zionist organizations, philanthropic organizations, educational organizations. We have organizations for children and organizations for the elderly. We have cultural organizations. Of course, all of them are run by seven women in Orange County. But the fact is, right, we have, we have organizations for which there are not yet problems. They already have a dinner set, they have a yearbook, they have the chopped liver, they're just waiting for the problem to raise the money, put the sticker on it. But the fact is that more than 50% of American Jews by that yardstick are not affiliated with the Jewish community. And someone told me here, I don't remember who, that it's 70% in California or in Orange County. I don't know if that's true or not, but that was what I was told. Ari, what's the number here? Do you have any idea? Does anybody have an idea of active in federation? Or? So 70%, I was told. Now, that's remarkable, right? That means assimilation is the preeminent option that Jews in Orange County have chosen for their own lifestyle. Now, the options I'm going to talk about from now moving along are all Jewish options, by which I mean they're all efforts by Jews to stay within some kind of boundaries while at the same time making, or at least in the middle, making changes. Now, the second group of Jewish uh, options, let's say, are complicated by this phenomenon. When Jews are trying to negotiate this quid pro quo, right, you give up your Jewishness, we give you citizenship, but they want to stay in some sense within a Jewish frame, they're also negotiating the larger culture. They're asking themselves, what does it mean to be modern? What does it mean to be a member of the Enlightenment? What does it mean to be a member of the intellectual life of Europe? And here, though I don't have time, I have to mention a couple of uh, very fundamental factors that create the conversation and influence these choices. These choices that we're going to talk about are all based on prior choices about certain kinds of values. Here I want to mention three or four uh, items. The first is the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, K-A-N-T. Right? So was that name known to all of you, Immanuel Kant? Okay. You know his great work was called The Critique of Pure Reason. The Critique of Pure Reason. The emphasis is on critique, not on pure reason. He gives an enormously powerful critique of how far reason can extend in proving certain assumptions. And his primary target is, first and foremost, traditional religion. He holds that most traditional religion is bogus. And he says the real character of the human person and its normative structures should not be religion but ethics. Ethics is where religion should center itself, not ritual. Ethics is what human beings should be concerned with. Ethics is the decisive activity of human value. This, of course, was enormously consequential. We'll see it in a minute. 
And of course, uh, there were times we could talk about all the epistemological genius of the critique of pure reason, but we don't have time for that. Ari will have to do that after I leave. Secondly, there is Hegel. Do all of you know the name Hegel? Hegel comes after Kant, and he does something very important to the history of thought. In the history of thought, until Hegel, all philosophical systems agreed on one thing. Truth was timeless. When Plato looked at the truth in the cave, in the Republic, he said the reason that it's the truth with a capital T, the reason that the forms, remember the realm of the Eidos, the forms are perfect is because, and this is to quote him, they don't come into being and they don't pass away. You and I are malleable, right? We change, we're contingent. We come into being and we pass away. The things that we know of the world come into being and pass away. Perfect things, things that are really true, don't come into being and don't pass away. They're always unchangeably true. Hegel said no. Hegel said, very, in a very Germanic way, which means almost unintelligible, that truth is touched by time. Truth is touched by time. Now that idea has been enormously repercussive. The idea that truth is touched by time has given us the idea of evolution. That things progress and get higher and higher. Darwin gave it a materialistic explanation, right? In animal life, you start with amoeba and you wind up with human beings. In Hegel's system, you wind up with primitive religion and you end with Hegel. So the fact is that time is crucial to truth. Now, you all know that because all of you are Hegelians. When someone says something to you, you always say, what's the context? Or it's relative to its environment, right? You all think like that because we're all modern post-Hegelian people. Now, that had an enormous influence on religion. We'll come back to. The third thing, if there were time, would be the response to the Enlightenment, which is romanticism, which says it's not intellect that's essential, but feeling. You all know the romantic poets, Wordsworth, Coleridge, uh, the romantic uh, painters, uh, Delacroix, and so on. And then also the last ingredient is scientism. I know not science, but scientism. Scientism is not that you study science, but that you make the values of science the ultimate values. See, that's, a, that's using science as a norm rather than as a method. Science as a value system rather than as a result. Now, given these preliminary uh, metaphysical, epistemological, intellectual conditions, when the Jews looked out at their neighbors and they were told, give up your Judaism, be like your neighbor, now they knew what their neighbors were like. Their German neighbors were... Kantians, or Hegelians, or ethicists, or evolutionists, or romantics. And so the Jews now tried to be like their neighbors. Remember, Protestantism in Germany was going through the same phenomenon, modern Protestantism. So Jews said, okay, we'll adapt ourselves. We won't give up Judaism completely, that's not necessary, but we'll adapt ourselves to the environment that we're in, with these new ideas. The first the oldest of the Jewish, right, that remain within the Jewish community, Jewish elements, is reform. Now, reform Judaism is an effort to do what? To come together, bring together modernity, the demands of modernity, with a Jewish identity. I'm talking about classical reform. 19th century classical reform. Modern reform has under, continued to change to, for example, classical reform, as you all know, is not Zionist. The modern reform is a member of the Zionist movement, right? So talk about classical reform, though the roots of classical reform remain really the principles of modern, except for the Zionism, the, the roots, root principles of reform remain the same. Now, what's the basis of Kant's position? Kant said two things. One, religion is about morality, right? Religion is about morality. Secondly, and this is the profound part, he redefined morality. Morality doesn't mean God saying to you, don't kill, don't steal, don't adulter. It means something you come through through your own reason. 
And when you will it, famous what he called the categorical imperative, when you will it, you will it to be a universal law. You will what should be a universal law. In other words, when you act, you would want everyone to act the same way in that situation. Meaning that if you were on the receiving end of it and someone else were acting, you would be happy with the consequence, right? So the principle is autonomy. You do it yourself. You can't be told what to do. If someone tells you what to do, it's not ethics. Why? Because when God tells you, for example, don't kill, it always has a catch. If you don't kill, God rewards you. So you're not really ethical, you're just looking for the reward. If you do kill, God comes and he punishes you. So it's not, again, because of the ethics, it's because God is powerful and he punishes you. Ethics means freedom, autonomy. That's the slogan of modern life. Everybody's autonomous, free, can choose what they want. Morality is also built out of human freedom. Reform Judaism is the application of the Kantian idea to religion, to Judaism. What you do is you go through essentially the role of the tradition, the 613 commandments, let's say simply, and you ask the following question. Is this an ethical rule or not? If it's an ethical rule or you can give it an ethical meaning, then you keep it. If it doesn't have an ethical content, then you can drop it. So, for example, if it's nationalist, like Zionism is nationalism, the return to the land of Israel is nationalism, messianism connected to the land of Israel is nationalism, you eliminate all of that. On the other hand, you emphasize social action, because that's ethics, right? You help your Jewish neighbor, and you help your non-Jewish neighbor, and you interpret the biblical rule of or goyim, a light to the nations, in ethical terms, you're going to help with uh, social justice, with charity, with building schools and hospitals. And to the degree you have messianism, it means social benevolence. The world is, is perfecting itself. Now, Reform Judaism also, it has to be said, valued religion in the sense that they thought the Jews had a special mission to the world to preach this kind of social ethics. That's how they interpreted the principle of chosenness of, of the idea of the covenant, the Torah, all of this is ethical. The ritual laws are just human laws. And more importantly, the basis of the laws is a human law. The Torah is not metaphysical. Kant said all of that metaphysical stuff about God and revelation and all of that, that's not possible to prove. It's all superstition. So we drop it, right? And so Reform Judaism becomes a modern religion in the Kantian form. It's sometimes called Kant with a yarmulke, though that's inaccurate because original reform didn't keep yarmulkes. So the fact is you have here a fundamental, profound, and I want to stress, reform was a really profound thing. On the one hand, it shifted the emphasis, it reevaluated Judaism, and to its credit, and I want to say this very clearly, to its credit, the people chose to remain Jews. That is say, these same intellectuals could have become Christians very easily, but they were too proud, too honorable, too committed. They stayed Jews, and that had a consequence. 150 years later, their grandchildren went to Auschwitz. So these are not small matters. The second group, which I've put on the ball called the Wissenschaft des Judentums, is the parent. Wissenschaft des Judentums means the science of Judaism. The science of Judaism is the grandfather of conservative Judaism in America. What is the Wissenschaft? The Wissenschaft is not a Kantian reformation of Judaism, but a Hegelian reformation. It is the idea that Judaism, like all forces, is subject to historical evolution. Historical evolution. Now, historical evolution has two important consequences. One, if you would understand the development of Judaism historically, it means you can continue to evolve, right? You can, it's a process, it's a principle for change. Evolution is a principle for change. Whatever the social order is now moving towards, that has a value for you because it's not timeless, right? We see that in the, in the current debate, which is at the center of the conservative movement today over homosexuality, right? That's the, the zeitgeist. The social condition is moving towards that understanding, and the conservative movement accepts that in principle as a, as a norm. 
Also, the zeitgeist is important for another reason, a negative reason, you might say, that have positive consequences. The Jews and the Christians have had a bad history. They have had prejudice, they have had pogroms, they have had violence. But all of this is not necessary. It may have been once upon a time when Jews and Christians lived in a Christian world, and Christians had their own stereotypes, and they defined us as a deicidal people and as corrupt, so things were bad. But just like Jews can evolve, Christians can evolve. So they'll give up their stereotypes, they'll give up their myths, they'll give up their hatreds. And the result is, in the modern world, two things will happen. Judaism will change in some fundamental way, consistent with the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, evolving. And the Gentiles will evolve towards a more humane relationship to the Jewish people. So anti-Semitism will drop away. The Jews will become less peculiar because we'll become more consistent with the zeitgeist. And all of the norms of the past will be reevaluated to the degree that they are in keeping with a contemporary sensibility, right? Evolution, a contemporary sensibility, then they will be welcome. To the degree they're not in keeping with a contemporary sensibility, they will drop away. And you can see what's happened. Take the major changes that you've all lived through in the conservative movement in the last 25 years. The most important, of course, was the ordination of women and the equal, what we call egalitarianization of the, of the synagogue, right? That was because, not because of the Jews, that was because society had moved towards the idea of equalization. Had the society been different, the, the conservative movement would have been different. It wasn't that the conservative movement valued egalitarianism per se. It valued egalitarianism because the society of which it was a part valued egalitarianism, and it wanted to be contemporary. So you see you have a reform version which is Kant emphasizing ethics, a conservative movement that, though deeply ethical, emphasizes as well the idea of historical growth, historical change, historical progress. You might say sociology is a very high value. And given this, the conservative movement as compared to the reform movement does not believe, and the Wissenschaft generally does not believe, in radical breaks. You don't have to make a revolution you can make an evolution, right? More slow progress, though in the end it may come to the same thing. Now the Wissenschaft, I need to be honest with you, was not a simple matter. None of these things are a simple matter. There were many different opinions. Some people like Geiger interpreted Wissenschaft in a very leftist direction, and he was of course the most famous reform rabbi. Some of the Wissenschaft scholars interpreted this very conservatively with a small c, like Zacharias Frankel, and they said the Torah is still true, the rabbinic tradition is still true, but the rabbinic tradition evolves, right? So these are more complicated than I've allowed, but given the time limits under which we're working, I hope that's intelligible, right? So you have Kantian Judaism in reform, Hegelian Judaism in uh, the Wissenschaft and in the conservative movement. Then you have neo-orthodoxy. This is almost a uh, contradiction in terms. Neo means new orthodoxy. How can you have a new orthodoxy, right? But new orthodoxy becomes part of the European landscape, and of course, it has its great uh, incarnation in the United States. Neo-orthodoxy is especially associated with a famous figure in Germany called Samson Raphael Hirsch and his great community in Germany in Frankfurt am Main. I want to stress, before I talk about this, that modern orthodoxy, just like conservative and reform, is a historical phenomenon. That is to say, the idea of someone being orthodox is a new idea. If you ask Maimonides, are you orthodox, he would say, what are you talking about? I'm a Jew, right? I don't, there's no orthodoxy. You're a Jew. You're a Jew. The idea of denominations at different definitions and people being in one group, people being in another group, people accepting parts and wholes, all of that is a modern phenomenon. The orthodox response is also a modern phenomenon. It takes awareness, it's conscious of the challenges of modernity. Also, orthodoxy is aware of its context. So for example, if you look at orthodoxy in the different countries of Europe, and in America too later on, you'll see that they're very different. So for example, English orthodoxy, which is called the United Synagogue. You've probably all been to England, you know, the, the heads of the synagogue wear a top hat and shawl and a sort of a cutaway jacket on Shabbos morning. That's because that's the way the Anglicans did it. So 
The United Synagogue in England, though nominally orthodox, in fact, is very liberal. If you go to Poland, the Orthodox are looking over their shoulders at their neighbors. They want to be like their neighbors. Their neighbors are Polish Catholics, not English Protestants. So the nature of their orthodoxy is very traditional, right? In Poland, you still had the Latin mass. You still had priests who did the traditional uh, rituals. And you, you know the story of uh, John Paul II and the issue of women, the great John Paul II Pope. So he's very troubled by this question of whether there'll be the ordination of women. So he goes into the Sistine Chapel and he prays and he says, God, I'm terribly troubled. Will there be peace in the church? And God says, don't worry, John Paul, there'll be peace in the church. And then he says, will there be, and he says, there will be peace in the church in, your, in my lifetime. He says, yes, there'll be peace in the church in your lifetime. Will there be women priests in my lifetime? And God says, no, there won't be women priests in your lifetime. Will there be ecumenical happiness, uh, togetherness in my lifetime? God says, yes, there will be in your lifetime ecumenical happiness. Then he says, God, will there be another pope? And God says, not in my lifetime. So, you see, the fact is that he was very conservative in theological matters and doctrine, very much opposed to women priests, very much opposed to people who are not celibate in the priesthood. All the things the American church wanted, he was opposed to. So when Jews defined their orthodoxy, it wasn't in a vacuum. German Jews, Polish Jews, Lithuanian Jews, Italian Jews, if you go around, you'll see they're all different. Orthodoxy is not, again, monolithic. It's diverse. I'm sure orthodoxy here in California is different than orthodoxy in Vilna, right? It's just the nature of the beast, because orthodoxy is also a modern phenomenon. It's responding to the challenges. Now, it did that really in two broad, three broad ways. The first is neo-orthodoxy, which I'll come back to in a moment. The second I've called Haredim, meaning all of the ultra-orthodox who are not Hasidim. Right? These are the descendants of the Misnagdim, the opponents of the Hasidim, who are ultra-Orthodox, who are disciples of the Vilna Gaon, and the whole school of people who are in the very ultra-Orthodox, but they're not Hasidim. The third camp are the Hasidim, who make up a special group. Now, what is the divider among these groups? First of all, the decisive issue between the neo-Orthodox and the others is over the question of, A, education, whether you can have secular education. That's a crucial issue. And the second is over the nature, the extent of the halakha, Jewish law. Let me say something about each of those. It's an old question, what should you study? What should young Jews study? If the Torah is the most important thing in the world, and if the Torah is God's own wisdom, and if, as the rabbis of the Talmud tell us, turn it and turn it, for everything is in it, is in it, then there's no need to study other things. And already in the classical period, there was a debate over secular, well, at that time it was secular, meaning Greek education. The rabbis called it Chachma Yevanit, Greek education, Greek study. And they puzzled it. They forbade it. You can't study Greek wisdom. In the Middle Ages, that came back with a furor when the Arab Jews, Jews in Arab countries, were part of a society that had rediscovered Plato and Aristotle, and the basis of medieval culture became Plato and Aristotle. So Maimonides, as you know, was famous because he's a student of Aristotle, and he redefines Judaism after Aristotle. People like Yehuda Halevi redefined Judaism after Kant, a kind of neo-Kantian tradition. Ibn Gaviral, his famous Keter Malchut. The Rambam said that you should take truth from wherever it comes. And that, of course, is also a dictum already of the rabbis. So secular education has a role. In the modern period, it came back to be the decisive issue. Should we have secular education? In Eastern Europe, the majority of the sages said no. They said secular education just means the first step towards assimilation. And they had in mind the maskilim. The maskilim were the model for what would happen if you studied secular things. 
When Chaim of Volozhin, for example, the disciple of the Vilna Gon, created the greatest yeshiva in the world in Volozhin, well, you know, V-O-L-O-Z-H-I-N, Volozhin, when the Russian government said to him, you have to introduce a few hours a week Russian language, not even any content, just Russian language, he closed the yeshiva. He said, no compromise, we just closed the yeshiva. On the other hand, Samson Raphael Hirsch, who was orthodox, but had a, already a university degree from the University of Bonn, he said, no, it's okay to study secular things. And he himself was a student of secular, of Semitic studies, as it was called, of uh, modern biblical criticism, of modern philosophy, especially Hegel. And he justified secular education. Now, once you have secular education, ladies and gentlemen, your perspective on the world changes. There's no doubt your, your perspective changes. The second thing you do then is you create schools where that becomes the model. So now, for example, we're here on this beautiful campus, and I'm sure 100 yards from us, in the Tarbut School, there's the modern version of the Hirsch philosophy, right? The kids do three hours a day of Hebrew and three hours a day of English, or whatever the, the day is. They're doing, and that's the true of all the modern day schools in America. So they do Hebrew studies because they want to be Jewishly literate. They do secular studies because they want to be part of the modern uh, environment. And of course, the paradigm in America is yeshiva university, a yeshiva that's also a university, right? It's unthinkable in Eastern Europe. Can you think the Vilna Gaon will have a yeshiva university in Vilna, right? So secular education is a decisive thing. And even today in Israel, the Haredim, as you know, don't allow their children to have secular, the boys to have secular education. The girls are allowed to have a technical education so they can earn some parnasa, some income, while the boys are in the, their husbands are in the yeshiva. The result of that, of course, is enormous poverty. And now they're starting to rethink that because the ultra-Orthodox world is imploding economically. The second aspect of neo-orthodoxy has to do with the range, the, the range of halakha. Halakha means the way, technically, the translation of the word. But it means something else. Halakha means what is normative. Normative is what is required. So for example, take a simple thing. Uh, Lulav and Esrog is required. On the festival of Sukkot, you have to take the four species, bind them together with the citron, and make the blessing of the, right? Passover, two months from now will be Passover, almost exactly, and you'll have obligations to make a Seder. It's not a choice, it's an obligation of the halakha. Avodim ho'yinu lefaro bi'aretz Mitzrayim. We were slaves to Egypt, and we have to teach our children the meaning of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the Exodus. Shabbat is not negotiable. Modesty is not negotiable. You can't go around with your puppet exposed and so on. But the question is, what is halakha? What are the limits? Are there limits to halakha? Now here, there's a very complicated discussion, which I just abbreviate this way. There is halakha. Halakha means the law. And then there are things that have accumulated in Jewish life, which I will call not halakha, but agada. Agada means non-legal aspects. You can also associate these with the notion in Jewish life called minhagim. What's a minhag? A custom. Customs. So, for example, take something you all know right away, food, right? We say Jewish food. But Jewish food is a custom. So it means, uh, what is it, uh, potato latkes and uh, borscht. And, now, that's a custom. Why? Because we lived in Eastern Europe where people, the Russians, eat borscht. So if you go to the Russian tea room on 57th Street, across from Carnegie Hall, the big deal is to have borscht. They don't know they can go buy Gold's Bosch for 89 cents. They, they pay $12 for a little bowl. So the fact is that Minhag and Agadah are not binding. Now the question is, let me give you an example of, the, of Agadah. There's an Agadah that says that the Jewish people, when they were sent into exile by the Rabbonu Shalom, by the Almighty, said, God said to them, if you will not rebel against the exile, I will make sure you survive as a people. That's Agadah. It's not law. It's some sort of tale or teaching. The Satma Hasidim take that as halakha, and they oppose the state of Israel on the basis of the fact that we try to reclaim Zion through our human effort, right? We rebel against the exile. So that's the foundation for Satma's opposition to the Zionist enterprise, to the state of Israel. They treat the Agadah as halakha, as equal in, to the law. 
Raphael Hirsch said no. He said, there are things that are not negotiable. Shabbos is not negotiable. But exactly what is permissible on Shabbos could be negotiable. Clothing. The principle of modesty is not negotiable. But you can be just as modest in a Brooks Brothers suit as in a kapata, a, a black, you know, traditional garb. You can be just as modest with a certain kind of dress for women as the traditional garb. There's nothing sexually explicit, nothing inappropriate. It's just a different style. So neo-orthodoxy is a way of justifying change. It says there is a core that is unchanging, halakha. But there have grown up in Jewish life over the millennia values and norms and customs which are not essential. They can be negotiated. They can be changed. And therefore, modern orthodoxy, between the value of education, allowing secular education, and allowing these changes of what I'll call custom, of dress, of speech, have created a really a movement that tries to integrate, right? To be modern, university, Yeshiva University, be a university, secular education, medical school, law school, dental school, you name it. YU has a version of it at the graduate level, but halakha, you cannot be violating the Shabbat. To the right of the neo-Orthodox are the two groups the Misnagdim, the opponents of Hasidism, the, neo, the uh, ultra-Orthodox opponents of Hasidism, who see as their great uh, hero, the Vilna Gaon, the, uh, Elijah, Rabbi Elijah of Vilna, who died in the 1790s. And for them, all secular education is a no-no. Is a no-no. They say secular education will lead to assimilation, acculturation, and we have to hold close, especially in the modern world, where the outside world is so powerful and so seductive and so interesting that if we enter that world, we'll be caught in its vortex and we'll give up our Jewish identity. In Eastern Europe, until the Shoah, that was a very large community. And today again, in Eretz Israel, you have two large uh, Orthodox communities, one half of them, are these Haredim. They're not Hasidim. They're ultra-Orthodox, but they're not Hasidim. The leader of the last generation was a man named Rav Shach, who was the head of the Ponovis Yeshiva. And the Yeshivot in Israel, I don't know what the custom is here in your high school, if they, all the children, when they graduate from 12th grade, go on an Israel program. In the East Coast, it's very common for the children to go to 12, to, who, those who go to day school will go to 12th grade in a day school, and then they'll finish, you might say, their Jewish education in a certain sense before they go to university by going to an Israeli yeshiva for a year or two. They go to Shalavim, they go to all the yeshivot in Israel. That is non-Hasidic. All of that is learning-based, based on very deep erudition, a kind of tradition of, what should I say, deep study. And they continue to maintain themselves both in Israel, primarily today, but before them, very great traditions of Eastern Europe. All the great Eastern European yeshivot were not Hasidic. They were this ultra-Orthodox, non-compromising study. To the right of them, even more extreme in its rejection of modernity, were the Hasidim. The Hasidim also rejected modern education, and they had, of course, their own theology of the Rebbe, the Tzaddik, and all of the magical, mystical, charismatic qualities of the Rebbe. But in addition, the Hasidim in particular said, modernity is a negative pollution, deep pollution. And to show you that it's a deep pollution, that we want nothing to do with it, that we don't want to leave the ghetto, we don't want to make any compromise, we don't want to accept this quid pro quo, we give up our Judaism, even to the minor degree, they continue to dress like 18th century people. If you ask yourself, why do the Hasidim continue to dress like the Polish noblemen in the 18th century, it's a sign of cultural denial. They want to deny modernity. Remember, clothing is a crucial thing. I look out at all of you, you have all accepted modernity in your clothing, right? If someone came into this room, they wouldn't know you were Jewish or Christian. This same group of people, the way you're dressed, could go to the Mariner Church that I pass, uh, and you'd look perfectly at home. The Hasidim would be out of place at the Mariner Church, right? And they'd probably be out of place at the JCC because clothing is a decisive part of acculturation. 
So when they wear the kapata, they wear the strimal, they wear the gartel, they're saying, we reject modernity. We don't want to make any compromise, even the smallest compromise. The neo-Orthodox, you see, want to compromise. They want to wear a Brooks Brothers suit that's modest. They say, we don't have to be 18th century people. We just have to be modest. The core principle is modesty, not 18th century modesty. Now, to the right of them is still another group. And those are the Zionists, which we'll talk about in detail next time, I hope. All of these groups stayed in the exile. Whatever the principles, whatever the degree of which they thought themselves appropriately modern, conversion was in Europe. Assimilation was in Europe. Reform Judaism was in Europe. And of course, Reform Judaism said, we give up the idea of nationalism. Right? Germany is our new fatherland. Berlin is our new Jerusalem. That's the language, right? Also reform, for example, Haggadahs didn't have the plagues in them because it didn't seem ecumenical for non-Jews to be suffering plagues. So there were lots of nationalist denials, but it was all in Europe. The Wissenschaft was in Europe. Samson Raphael Hirsch was a German nationalist, and he opposed Zionism. It's very interesting. People forget that. He was not a Zionist. He thought the Jews had a golden homeland in Germany. The Haredim and the Hasidim didn't think they had a golden homeland in Poland. They knew Poland was a sewer by the 19th century for the Jews, and that there was persecution and violence and anti-Semitism and blood libels and desecration of the host libels and everything. But they said, God has put us in the Galut, and we have to stay in the Galut till God will redeem us. So that they make, you might say, their peace. Not a happy peace, not a... Uh, an enviable peace, but they make their peace. By their peace, I mean they don't reject the exile. They don't try to overturn the exile. The only group in Jewish life that rejects the compromises that we've discussed today, makes other compromises, is Zionism. Zionism says it doesn't matter whether you will convert or you will be a chassid. If you stay in the galut, the Jewish question will not be solved. If you stay in the Galut, there will always be what's called in Zionist literature the universality, the eternality of anti-Semitism. It doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter whether it's in England or it's in Vilna, it doesn't matter if it's in Budapest or it's in Paris, there will be anti-Semitism. That Europe, and this was a Zionist uh, insight par excellence, you might say, was that Europe for all of its goodwill in the Enlightenment and for all of its goodwill in the French Revolution and the revolutionary movements that came thereafter, and for all of the goodwill of the so-called European civilization, at its heart, there was something in the European political bloodstream, cultural bloodstream, which could never expunge completely its negativity towards Jews. And therefore, in Europe, you would never have a satisfactory solution of the Jewish problem. Remember, all of this is about the Jewish problem. The only way, they said, to have an honorable solution to the Jewish problem, and I stress the word honorable, both for the Gentiles, it'll be honorable because they won't have to be anti-Semites and hate us and have pogroms. They won't be violent. They won't have blood on their hands. It will be honorable. And for the Jews, it will be honorable because we won't have to be second-class citizens. We won't have to deny who we are. We won't have to be always worried that somebody will discover we're Jews and something will happen, right? We'll be to go and create our own autonomous land, political land uh, in Eretz Israel. So Zionism belongs to Europe. That is to say, Zionism is born in Europe as a modern political movement. It's especially born in Eastern Europe by the people like Pinsker responding to the pogroms of the 1870s and 1880s of Russia. It then gets its great quantum leap when Herzl comes to cover the Dreyfus trial. You all know, right? The Dreyfus trial in 1893 in Paris. And what does it say in Paris? It doesn't say death to Dreyfus. The placards up and down the boulevard say death to the Jews. And Herzl, who is Dreyfus, Herzl is Dreyfus in the sense that he's also totally assimilated. Dreyfus is assimilated, he's a soldier. Jews until now were not soldiers. Herzl is assimilated, he's a journalist, right? And he's a dandy. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the young Herzl. He's very good looking and he's always in a, in a dinner jacket and a boat, you know, sort of an evening dress and he's always going to the opera and he's very cultured, very, very elegant, beautiful man. 
But he all of a sudden realizes this extraordinary insight. No matter how beautiful he looks in his tuxedo, he's still a Jew. And so Europe won't acculturate, allow him to acculturate, even if he wants to. And so the Zionists, though born in Europe, preach the message of a different kind. Now this, you see, is the panoply of Jewish responses to emancipation. Of course, I've not talked about America because America represents a different, what should we call it, a different shoot, a different out, growth, outgrowth of modernity, uh, which uh, is another matter altogether. But for Europe, where all the Jews are essentially, there are very few Jews in America until 1880. Then after 1880, there'll be two million immigrants till 1923. The fact is, the great European responses are these, as you can see, diverse, complicated, and then Zionism comes very late, at the end of the 19th century, when all these others have been postulated, and all these others are deemed by the Zionists to be a failure. So that's the nature of the Enlightenment and the Jewish response there, too, which was the subject of today's lecture. Thank you.